Shalom from Jerusalem and welcome back to the Quran podcast. I'm joined as always by Alex Trucker and we have a really exciting special episode for you this week. We do. Uh, something we're very proud of here at Quran is the work we do to bring Jewish texts to life. Uh, and this week we were taken out into the field by Nahli Al Salavan, who also goes by the museum guy, uh, to explore some lesser known treasures of the land. Aside from being a really fun day out, we also wanted to understand the limits of even the best compiled books, even though the Koran Tanakh of the Land of Israel, the new Magaman edition Tanakh, or books like Places in the Parsha have some amazing explorations of the lay of the land, archaeology, and, and more. It doesn't compare to actually spending time exploring the sites in person. Right. So all the more so where, when people haven't been able to come and visit from abroad, um, or when several of those places were closed because of the COVID pandemic, we wanted to give you, the listeners, uh, a taste of what it can mean to learn Torah Eretz Yisrael. So our tour with Nachliel started at Tel Lachish, uh, which is sort of south of Bet Shemesh to the east of Kiryat Gat. Um, it's not somewhere that either of us had been before, but as Nachliel explained, it played a major role in several stories in Tanakh also in our modern understanding of the world of the Tanakh, so of the Bible. So without further ado, let's jump right in and we'll pop back into the studio to share some of our thoughts. Um, but we hope that you enjoy. We are now approaching the second most important city after Yerushalayim in the time of Bayit Rishon, in the time of the first temple. Would you guess what the second most important city is? Well, you'll probably say, I don't know, Hebron, maybe? Rechavia or Beit Shemesh. I don't know, depending where you're from in the world, but uh, Beit Shemesh is very close to Israel today. But it used to be part of the country. We're approaching Tel Lachish. Lachish is the second most important city, a very important administrative center. And we know that because of the many times it's mentioned in Tanakh, what actually happened there, but also the mentions of Lachish outside of Tanakh and the archaeology that's been found about it and in the site. The importance of the site goes all the way to the British Museum, where we have the throne room of Sanchariv, the king of Ashur, who attacked Chizkiyahu, who tried to conquer Yerushalayim and failed. But despite the fact that he failed to conquer Yerushalayim, he succeeded in destroying Lachish. And that was such a big deal that he used it as the decoration of his throne room in his capital in Nineveh. That's how important Lachish is. It's also a propaganda move, of course, because if you failed outside Yerushalayim, you still want to show that you succeeded with something very important, and uh, Lachish is second best. So we are now approaching Lachish. There are a lot of cars parked here. There's people doing work. It can be probably uh, an Israeli tour group. It can be the Antiquities Authority. It can be preservation. The site is always busy with something going on, and we're gearing up towards the excavation period. We're gearing up towards the summer's uh, digging excavations. This is when expeditions run because the professors are teaching during the year. So you're going to start having digs here. Uh, you can sign up for digs at findadig.com. I think there's some hyphens in there, but just Google find a dig. And you can probably volunteer for a day or two. If you're in university, you can also get college credit if you sign up. I've been a couple times on this dig. It's a lot of fun. Uh, digging on a site means getting up really early in the morning. Uh, by the crack of dawn because by 2 p.m. it's way too hot to actually dig so you're going to do what's called um, sifting and scrubbing 
pottery, which is the bane of your existence if you are <laughs> if you're in an excavation. Everybody hates pottery work, but everyone's got to do pottery work. It's a lot less fun than it's a lot less glamorous unless you actually find something in the clay, and uh, that happens occasionally. You find writing, but that happened in uh, Tel. That happened in Chirbet Kayafa. Where somebody actually I was excavating with him here, but he was scrubbing a piece of clay. Uh, you just let it soak in water. You s- scrub the mud off, and then somebody saw he, he saw the writing and goes, "Wait, don't touch that!" And they found one of the most earliest inscriptions uh, from Chirbet Kayafa, which is another site, a very important site from the time of Beit Rishon. Not going to discuss that site too much today, but it's an important site as well. So that's it. We're here at Lachish. We're about to go up the mountain, and we're going to tell stories about this site as we travel it, but there is a new visitor center that has not opened yet, but we are looking at it. It's right here at the parking lot when you pull in to the National Park. I don't know when it's going to open. Hopefully very soon you'll be able to see it. Cool. Uh, there's a green van next to us which has Rishut Ateva Ve'aganim. So uh, whatever it is that they're doing here, might be interesting. Maybe we can talk to them. All right. I mean, so just ge- geographically, we're so 30 or 40 miles south of Jerusalem. Yeah, we're about halfway between Yerushalayim and Beresheva. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so we're, we're again, we're between the hills and we're between the, the Shvela. We're on the south of uh, the, the Shvela. We're closer to Aza. Okay. How, as in, we're saying, when we're saying this is Talachish, the Lachish is at the top of the, like, the actual so, town, tell, city of, of Lachish is at the top of the tail? Well, Lachish is the tell. The yeah. tell is there's a, there's a famous book in archaeology. It's called the Tale of a Tell. The tell is the layers of the city's civilizations, which were built like a layer cake, one on top of the other. A civilization is destroyed. Whatever can be salvaged from that destruction layer is reused. Everything is filled in. We don't have trucks. We don't have the manpower, the time, the resources to bulldoze the place down. Yeah. And they just build on top of it. That's how archaeology works. This was discovered gradually over several excavations for over 150 years ago. Gradually this was understood and that's why documenting what each layer is is so important because context is everything. Yeah. Yeah, just like stratigraphy when you study ancient ancient uh, animal life, same thing with archaeology. You have what's called uh, what's called strata. It's the same thing. It's called layers in the tell. So for example, Lachish has six layers from top to bottom. And archaeologists will name them from the the top is the, you know, Lachish, um, Lachish 1 is going to be the latest civilization that was there. So, for example, here you would say uh, you have the Persian period and then you have the Hellenistic period below it and then the Roman period and then the Babylonian, Assyrian. You move all the way down to Canaanite or whatever it is. That's how it generally works. So, and as you said before, the, f- the first one would have been... So the first one would have been probably Hellenistic or something like that, maybe Muslim you know, depending on what you find there. So the top uh, layer, basically. The t- yeah, the top, top layer. layer. So yeah. the top layer is usually boring if you're studying biblical. Right. The top layer is going to be, it's going to be Mamluk, Hellenistic, or something like that. Yeah. Uh, you find that in a lot of sites. Yeah. But here you're going to find layer four was destroyed. So the end of a layer is the destruction. Yeah. So okay. Layer four was, disturb- was destroyed by Sancheirev. Layer three was dis- destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Layer five is debatable if it exists or not. That would be Rechavam. And layer six is Canaanite, right? Right, okay. and that's been found here. There's Canaanite uh, material that's been found around here. Uh, there's an old, very old temple, which there's a question: Is it a temple? Is it not a temple? There's a temple from 
the time of of, of uh, the Melachim that's here. It's called the uh, it's called Mikdash Hafil. It's discovered by uh, David Usishkin of Tel Aviv University. So that's here. It was found in a landfill. And there is a, a Persian period one that's probably layer two. There's a Persian period. Uh, it's called the Temple of the Sun. So okay, that's cool. what it, so the Tel is the, all the civilization. That's why we say in in, in Lachadodi we say Venivneta Ir Altila. Right, Altila, the city was be built, should be built on top of its mound because that's all of right. its destruction. Now we're going to build it on top. Right. I think a good place to start is to the right, uh, where there is the remains of a siege ramp. Okay. That's very important. Let's move on to the siege ramp and talk about it. Okay. What is okay. a siege ramp? Who made it? Why is it here? First of all, so. The excavations here, there have been several seasons of excavations here from the 1800s. You know, we're talking about uh, Pritchard, uh, people trying to identify biblical Lachish. It was misidentified. They finally found the site. And one of the earliest things that were found here is this siege ramp, which means piles and piles of stones which were laid out in a ramp in order to level the entry to, uh, to the city's fortifications, which were all the way up there. And we're going to talk about this new installation on the site. When you come to Lachish, you'll see that there are these metal figures of Im images of people attacking the city and people defending the city. And these are all new. They've only been here a few years. And they're based off the Assyrian palace relief from Nebuchadnezzar, sorry, from Sancheriv's throne room, which, which displays the Battle of Lachish as part of a campaign to conquer, uh, to reestablish authority over the rebellious countries and coalitions of kingdoms who got together and rebelled against the Assyrian Empire to throw off the terrible yoke of Assyria. So this is Sancheriv's campaign roughly 2,700 years ago. We know the story from the Haggadah Shel Pesach. We have this pismon, which is Balayla. Um, I'd have to pull that up. I remember exactly, uh, but one of the one of the lines in Balayla and the Haggadah, we can insert this later, is that Sancheriv came and attempted to destroy Yerushalayim, and then the Malach came and you know killed his his army, and he ended up going back and defeat Ninveh. So that story is part of this campaign where Chazal say, had Chizkiyahu Hamelech said Shira after the fall of Sancheriv. He could have been Mashiach, that could have been Gogol Mogul. And we do not appreciate what that means until you recognize who the Assyrian Empire was. So the story of Lachish is one of those stories that really brings to light the terrifying Assyrian Empire. And we're starting here by the siege ramp. So there was a siege on the city of Lachish. We hear about Lachish in Tanakh several times, starting with Yehoshua. With Yehoshua, it actually stands out because it actually took Yehoshua two days to conquer Lachish, whereas everything else is just like list and names of kings that just fell before him, all these little city-states. So Lachish took two days. So we know it's a powerful city. It's, a, it's an empower, a powerful city. It controls the passageway from the coast into the hills. It's one of those border cities of the kingdom of Yehuda. So this is Lachish, and the Assyrian Empire conquered Lachish. We hear about it when Sancheriv is, on, is sending his army to Yerushalayim, Chizkiyahu sends messages to Sancheriv to say, Chatati, you know, I will pay you the tribute you want. I'm so sorry, I've been a naughty boy. At that time, Sancheriv is at Lachish. Let me just, uh, let me just pull that up. 
Okay, so we are in in Melachim Bet Yudchet Pasuk Yud Gimel, and for fourteen years, the Melech Hizkia, Allah Sancheriv Melech Ashur, Al Kol Arei Yehuda Habitzurot, Vayit Pesem. Sancheriv comes to to uh, pay punishment to all of the people who rebelled against him, including including Hizkiyahu, and he comes to all of the fortified cities of Yehuda. Vayishlach Hizkia Melech Yehuda El Melech Ashur Lachisha Lemor Chatati. שוב מעליי, את אשר תיתן עליי אשא. ויעשה מלך אשור על חזקיה מלך יהודה, שלוש מאות כיכר כסף ושלושים כיכר זהב, etc, etc, etc. You're looking at what would be the equivalent of a tank. This is a uh, this is uh, siege technology, advanced siege technology from 2,700 years ago. The Assyrians invented it practically. It's a big tank. It's a wheeled vehicle which is pushed up this siege ramp, and you see several things on it. You see there's archers on the top shooting at the people in the defenses. It has a very long protruding beam with a spike at the end, which is intended to crumble down the fortification stones and there is a person pouring water onto that beam why because if you look all the way up at the the image of the defenders of the city in the lachish relief they are throwing torches down at the invading assyrians or anything they have wheels stones whatever they can the torches are there to burn this battling ram to burn this tank so it doesn't crumble the city's defenses So this is an innovation. It's, it's genius. They have somebody with water there. Imagine how much weight that adds. And he's pouring water with this spoon, with this ladle, over onto the beam of the battling ram to put out the fire so that they can continue uh, moving up the hill. And eventually they, they indeed destroy Lachish. When you enter the site, you should know that there's very informative plaques yeah. very visual in Hebrew Arabic and in English with a beautiful timeline that not only tells you where you are on the layers of the tell and where they are chronologically uh, where where they are chronologically it even has a picture of associated archaeology so to give you an example you're walking here right by the new visitor center and there's a new paved way with a fence on both sides walking up you can feel safe walking up this new pathway to your right there's a plaque that shows you that uh, that tank the Assyrian tank we were showing it shows it to you in color and it gives you a date with an, with nice graphics so it says there uh, 727 to 701 BCE in three languages Lifnas Fira and um, and it shows you this image and it tells you the story so here it says assault by Sennacherib's army the siege ramp and it tells you the story And it shows below, illustration based on relief from Sancherif's palace in Nineveh, depicting the conquest of Lachish. So Lachish is an important city, we've established that. And there's a timeline on the left, and we're going to get back to it, because this timeline shows out throughout the site's uh, new pictures, which is really where, uh, where your tax money should be going to developing these sites. Yeah. Right? So here we are in Lachish uh, layer 4. Layer, uh, It says, Malchut Chizkiyahu, the kingdom of Hezekiah, and you are here, 701, right there, and it talks about Sancherib's conquest. Before that, in 720, you have Churban Mamlechet Israel, yeah. the destruction of the Israelite kingdoms by Assyria, while the kingdom of Judah stays standing. 
That's Chizkiyahu's father, Achaz, who became a vassal to the Assyrian Empire for a short time. And beforehand, you have Malchut Yisrael Yehuda, kingdoms of Israel and Judah, going down to 928, and then they go all the way to uh, Kingdom of David and Solomon 1029, the 11th century, before that's Kufat Shoftim. Right. So that's as far as this uh, timeline goes. And it goes all the way to the destruction of the, of the first temple in the time of, of Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to jump between them because of the way the site's laid out in the archaeology there. But here it shows you Lachish letter 4 in the British Museum. That's a very important archaeological find, a very special one. And what I like about this is it's very much in, in terms of um, what we're doing here today is that often when you come to a site, you'll have a map of the site and they'll say, you are here. Where are you located geographically? But what this is doing is saying, right. by standing here, we can see where we are geographically, but where are we located chronologically? The you are here on the sign here says, is to do with the chronology, where we stand chronologically. That's very it's important. Cool. So Nafi, well, just whilst we're walking, let's uh, talk about you a bit. And we were talking in the car before we started recording you sort of spent the last year and a half or so during the pandemic sort of pioneering um, these virtual museum tours. What were you doing before Corona? What, what are you doing now? How have you adapted to, to what's happening? Before museum tours, I actually was digging here on Tel Lachish for a few days with the Hebrew University with uh, Professor Yossi Garfinkel. And I was here because I had this idea of making a YouTube channel to assist Jewish educators in coming up with creative ideas to, to, uh, to bring their classes to life. So I know about the archaeology, the history, I grew up in the Rova, and so I thought this is going to be something nice, a YouTube channel. And I didn't really think too much of that. I thought this is going to be for YouTube. And I was telling one of my professors from uh, undergrad about what I'm doing. He's the communications department head at Lifshitz and at also Bar-Ilan University. I met him at Bar-Ilan and he's like, listen, I don't see YouTube really happening but you did this tour for your students at the Met, you know, for a Tanakh tour. I did this in January 2015. It was just like an extracurricular thing that I did for them, a field day. And he said to me, you know, you're sitting on a treasure trove. You're in Manhattan and you have the Metropolitan Museum of Art. You have the knowledge and you're sitting on a treasure trove. All you got to do is start digging. This is New York City. If you can grab the attention of a New Yorker for an hour and a half in the museum, you can do anything. Right? So I said, you know what, he's right. So all of this information that I was amassing for a YouTube channel ended up serving me to creating content in museums. So I was doing museum tours for four years in, in New York. It ended up branching out to uh, North America, even, even Canada, and then Europe and Israel. So I've just been doing museum tours. And then when Corona hit, I just adapted and I started specializing in virtual tours, realizing I've been to all these museums, but now I don't have to wait till I go to Boston to speak to the people in Brookline and, and Newton. I can just say, hey, I have a tour of the Boston MFA. I've been there. I know the museum's layout. I know what's there. Let's make a virtual tour of that museum. And one thing led to another. I realized, you know what? Why limit myself to one museum at a time? I can do a smorg of, you know, five different museums and three different sites. I can take you to Tel Lachish on Google Earth or Google Maps, then take you into the Israel Museum and then to the British Museum, and then to take you to the Pergamon Museum and see Nebuchadnezzar's uh, Ishtar Gates, and then take you to the site in Iraq. I mean, just, wow, the sky's the limit. So I started specializing in that. And now in this corona world, suddenly virtual content is king. So I'm, I'm just having a lot of fun with it. Wow. A beautiful plaque which says the Tel Lachish National Park with an introduction. It tells you uh, settlement began here in the Neolithic period. 
And in the Canaanite period, Lachish was a key city in the south of the, of the country. During the Judahite monarchy, Lachish was powerfully fortified and became the second most important city in the kingdom after Jerusalem, the capital. It goes on and on, uh, all the way to the Hellenistic period and so on. It's beautifully done. It has a colorful picture of Tel Lachish with a numbered route telling you where to go. It says, this is where you are right now. You are here physically at the entrance and you're going up from the visitor center, which is going to open soon, to the city gate, which is going to be our next stop. And then there's the king's palace. There's a well here as well, something we don't really consider uh, when we talk about population growth and uh, how much a city can sustain. This is a very important question when it comes to Tanakh and, and sometimes challenges that come up in archaeology is how many people actually lived in a place. What was the population? What was the amount of people deported by the Assyrians or the Babylonians? How many people went to battle? How many people lived in city XYZ? Right, this goes all the way down to Egypt. I mean, I mean um, Bible criticism actually was born out of the question of what population what was the size of the Jewish population, the Israelite population in Egypt? How many people can Egypt sustain? And you suddenly realize, wait a minute, how do you fit Shishim Ribo in there when the country can only produce X amount of... Those are the kinds of questions that come up. And I mean, of course, these are questions that we already deal with today, but those were really surprising when you started studying archaeology. One of the factors are how, much, how do you get your water? And how much water do you need to sustain the fields and the crops around you? And the city is defending a lot of fields around us. There's a lot of vineyards we can see. And how many people can live off this amount of water? Right, so that's a very important factor. Imagine living at the top of a hill and needing, like, how do you do what you do today? Right, you need to, do you shower? What do you use water for? For washing fruit? For drinking water? For, like, you have to go all the way to the well, wait in line, or just... Uh, or just bewitch a bunch of broomsticks to do it for you. Right. So that's a serious factor. Is it, well, how much can the city sustain? And before, as we were driving in, you mentioned kind of, this was like the second city after Yerushalayim right. at the time. I've been looking, I mean, I don't know, we're, not, we're still standing at the bottom now. I don't know what it's going to look like at the top, but size-wise, comparatively, how, does, how, did, how did Lachish at this time in size compare to Yerushalayim in size at the same time? Uh, well, it's a, it's a pretty big city. Um, it's, no, it's nowhere near the size of Yerushalayim, but it's not only the size of the city, it's the power of the fortifications and its geographical location as the defense for anybody invading in from the coast. So before coming to Yerushalayim, Sancherev, Nebuchadnezzar, conquer the coastline. Because if you don't, if you enter Yerushalayim, you're going to be flanked by the defenses coming from Lachish, Azekah, and so on. So you really need to get rid of those defenses before you make your way into Yerushalayim. So setting the scene, as you could probably hear in the background, we pulled off the highway and we arrived at what looked like just a big hill. But as Nachliel explained now, thanks to the aid of various installations by the Israeli Parks Authority, this wasn't just a hill. Lachish was the second most important city in biblical Israel and it played a key role in the administrative running of the ancient kingdom, as well as being huge strategic importance during Sancheirev's conquest. That's right. And it's so amazing like, to just hop out of the car on a Wednesday morning, as we did, uh, and see with your own eyes these places that are mentioned dozens of times in Tanakh. Um, but then like, we started climbing the Tell, this, this big hill, um, 
And Nachel showed us like why it was that he recommended Lachish in particular as somewhere that might be of interest to the listeners um, that highlights the unparalleled benefit of learning Tanakh actually out in, in the land. Yeah, so when we, we were planning this episode, we thought of just going to Jerusalem, to Yerushalayim, to Ir David, City of David, perhaps. But Nachal immediately suggested Lachish as an option of somewhere that, you know, many of you, the listeners, me personally, I think Alex as well, have never visited before. But is really so amazing, both because it gives an impression of everyday, everyday life in the times of Tanakh, but also how it enhances our general understanding of Tanakh from things that have been discovered there. So let's take a listen to what happens next. Now, we are walking up the ramp towards the Iron Age city gates. Iron Age is code word for Tkufat HaMelachim from the time of David and Shlomo all the way to the destruction of Bayit Rishon in Yehuda. So Iron Age is a relative term. Um, we can talk about European colonialism and where the term comes from. It's a fascinating story that's full of misconceptions. But let's just stick to what the terminology because the terminology is key in Israeli archaeology. So Iron Age means Kufat HaMelachim. Now we're climbing up. Tell me, do you notice anything about, can you observe anything about the ramp going up in terms of the relationship to the city? Anything? What's on the side? We're like going on the well, side of the town. Well, which side? Uh, which side is the city on? What's on our right? The city's on our right. So our entry point into the city is going to be on our right. Now if we were attackers marching up this ramp towards the city gate, how would that impact us? Ah, uh, your right hand's going to hit. Well, the defenses are on our right. They're shooting down at us. Which hand do I hold my sword in? In your right. You're screwed. So your shield's on the wrong Sorry, side. is that too censored? No. <laughs> okay. So what happens is you're holding your spear or your sword in your right-hand side. Your shield hand is on your left. You're in trouble. So what do you do? You switch hands. And then you're also in trouble because not many left-handed people. So you're privy to attack from the left now. Right. Right? So this is brilliantly done. Something we don't pay attention to, but... That's part of the idea. It's one of the defenses of the city. And when we walk up, there's two different walls here. There's a wall to our right, yeah. and there's a squiggly black line showing you what was found below and what was reconstructed above right. from the same stones, but you know, reconstructed. And there's another wall to our left. Some of these walls are much older, meaning they're pre-Iron Age. So you can say Bronze Age and play with that. But Bronze Age is basically um, from... Uh, from Knisala Aretz backwards, okay. you know, several hundred years. Like the, the pyramids in Egypt were built in the early Iron Age. Sorry, the pyramids in Egypt were built in the uh, early Bronze Age. The Avot are generally accepted to be Middle Bronze Age. It's, we can debate that, but that's generally. So we are now inside the city gates. We are inside the city gates of Lachish and observe that they are very powerful gates. The walls of the gates are thick. There are several compartments within the wall and these segmented walls, these gates, also serves as a defense. We find this in other Iron Age defenses uh, such as uh, Gezer and uh, Kayafa. We find that the entrance to the city has um, has several segments, several rooms, chambers. It's called a three-chambered room. Okay. But let's stand before we get into the city. Uh, look at the surrounding area. There is the slopes below here with a lot of vineyards. 
there is a moshav called Moshav Lachish. It's a modern moshav. I think uh, Grand Master Archaeologist David Usishkin, who dug here with Tel Aviv University, he's the, he was the authority on Tel Lachish. He wrote the book. So I think he lives here in Moshav Lachish. He's living next to his... This is his, uh, his baby. His baby. baby yeah. yeah, there's Tel Lachish. I, I got to meet him here during an excavation, during the last week of an excavation, where he comes to be... He came here for a private tour with the head of the Hebrew University's excavation, the expedition with uh, Dr. Yossi Garfinkel, Professor Yossi Garfinkel, who is from a rival university. They're of rival schools of thought. But he's saying, this is what we have done so far with your site. And he showed him around. The conversation between them reminded me of a story I heard of the Rogachover. Uh, so this is some family history. My great-grandfather, my namesake, uh, my middle name is Yosef, Yosef Selavan, was very close with Chaim Bialik and Shai Agnon and, and Leah Goldberg, like all these people, he was very close with them. And he, when my father was in yeshiva, he asked his grandfather, is it true that when the Rogachover met Chaim Bialik, he didn't look him in the eyes? It's an urban legend. So he said, how did you know about that? I was the one who took him to meet the Rogachover <laughs> as he spent some time in, in Dvinsk and he was very close with him. He was a Ben Bait, even though he was very anti-religious and secular, but uh, he was from that generation, but he was a Ben Bait there. He was doing Shlichot, this whole thing. So what was the conversation about? It was about a perush on the Mishnah at the time when the, uh, the Yemenite uh, version of the Mishnah uh, came here and which version should he print his uh, his parish on but what was the conversation like so the students and the Rogachover like they're bouncing uh, they're bouncing um, lines between them they go like Sanhedrin Samach Gimel yeah but Eruvin Nun Gimel yeah but Shabbat Chavbet like they're bouncing off like that's how you're holding in the conversation Lehavdil Elfavdalot what was going on is like, yeah, but Megiddo 10, remember I mentioned what the numbers are, yeah. Megiddo 10, la, 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 la. So it goes, yeah, but then Gezer 5 and Lachish 2. And this, that was what the conversation was like. Okay, I'm recording this, but I have no idea what's going on. Right. <laughs> That's what the conversation was like. You like, really hold your ground. Amazing. Yeah. So we're looking at the surrounding area. You see that Lachish is a powerful hill yeah. overlooking and protecting uh, this entire area. And it's protecting the fields below. It's controlling the passageway. So it's a very important natural defense on your way in uh, from the Shvela, on your way in from the coast. All right. We are skipping ahead to the destruction of Lachish by Nebuchadnezzar because that is the, that's the plaque we're looking at right now. We're going to be jumping between Sancheiriv and Nebuchadnezzar. So let's move up close. We can see them. When you walk into the city, again, the city's on your right. You take a right and a right. And there's a plaque here that says, Testimony to Approaching Disaster, The Lachish Letters. And if you Google The Lachish Letters, you're going to find them. They are in the British Museum. And they are world famous. But what's also interesting is I found, uh, if you look in your Steinsalz and Neviim, um, in Seif Yirmiyari, right? Steinsalz I'm so not up to date. I've only had Yishayel. <laughs> okay, so in the Steinsalz Nevi'im, you'll see a picture of uh, the Lachish letters. Uh, Yirmiyahu talks about Lachish. Is that? Yeah, I'm looking for it. Here we go. Um, so, 
by this uh, parak, which Nachalei will tell us about in a second, you'll see on the page in your Steinsatz Nevi'im a picture of these Lachish letters, which also appear a reproduction here on the sign here. Um, so tell us about it. This is Lachish letter four. They are simply named by the order they were documented and cataloged. There's Lachish. I think there are about eighteen letters of Lachish, maybe twenty-two. I think eighteen. There's, so there's, let's just say there's over a dozen Lachish letters. This is Lachish letter four. Now, before I read what it actually says on the Lachish letter, I want to read to you from Yirmiyahu Lamed Dalad, which is, while it goes like this, Lamed Dalad begins, Hadavar asherayal Yirmiyahu me'et Hashem, unnevuchadnetzar melech bavel v'chol chelo, v'chol mamlechot eretz memshelet yado, v'chol ha'amim, the context for this nevuah of Yirmiyahu is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babel, and all of his army, and all of the kingdoms which, who he governs and controls. In other words, all of his vassal states, and all of the nations are all gathering to fight against Yerushalayim. And here is what Yirmiyahu says. Here is what Yirmiyahu is told. Ko amar Hashem Elohei Yisrael, haloch ve'amarta el tzidkiyahu melech Yehuda ve'amarta elav. I'm handing the city over to the king of Babylon and he's going to burn it by fire. You will not escape. You will be captured and you will be handed over to him. We know that Tzidkiyahu actually tried to run away and was caught escaping the city. It's a very sad story. You will see him with your own eyes and you will speak to him with your own mouth and you will come to Bavel, except he gets killed on the way. He never makes it to Bavel. And on and on. Now we're skipping a few psukim to Pasuk Zayn. We'll skip to Pasuk Vav. So we're in Yerushalayim. This is the story. The army is gathering towards Yerushalayim. But here's what's happening in the meanwhile. V'chel melech Bavel nilchamim al Yerushalayim ve'al kol arei Yehuda hanotarot. Nebuchadnezzar's army are fighting Yerushalayim. Uh, they are uh, battling against Yerushalayim and all of the remaining standing cities in Yehuda, el Lachish ve'el Azeka. Lachish and Azeka are the two last standing cities which they are busy destroying. Ki hena nish'aru be'arei Yehuda, arei Mivtsar. These are the last two standing cities to fall before Yerushalayim. Now enter Lachish letter 4. Lachish letter 4 was found here in the British excavation. And they found about 20 of these. They're called Ostraka or Ostrakon in singular. And it's written in Ktav Ivri, in ancient Hebrew. Ancient Hebrew script known as Ktav Ivri Kadum. So here's what it says. Yashma Hashemet Adoni Ata Kayom Shmuot Tov. It's like everything's good. Vata. Now I'm reading to you the words as they are written here. You can hear that it's biblical Hebrew, but it's understandable. I have done everything that I have been commanded. So you understand that there is some sort of messenger, there's an authority, there is a hierarchy of power here. He's reporting to his commander. I have written everything that you asked me to do. So there is some place called Bet Harpad. There's a discussion about that, of course. And there's nobody there. There's a person named Smachyahu, very biblical name, uh, takes Shmaiyahu and brings him to the city. So I did what you asked me to do. 
ועבדך אינני שולח לשם אותו עד היום, אוקיי, פיין, and here's the key phrase. כי אם בבוא הבוקר, oh, it's supposed to be key בתשובת הבוקר, אוקיי. כי אם בבוא הבוקר וידע, I want you to know that first thing in the morning, אל משואות לחיש אנחנו שומרים. We are protecting the bonfires, the משואות of לחיש. We hear about the משואות on משנה, on ראש השנה, ראש חודש, right? ככל האותות אשר נתן אדוני, we have the, the signs that we have for whatever the message is being sent from hilltop to hilltop by bonfire, כי לא נראה את הזיקה, because we cannot see הזיקה. You are, now, according to one of the interpretations of this, this is a technical description of the geography, saying from where we are standing, you can't, you don't have a straight line of vision to הזיקה, So I need you to do X, Y, and Z because so and so. So that's one interpretation. The more dramatic interpretation, which is the one brought here because, of course, it's more dramatic, is Azekah has fallen. We can no longer, we, there's no communication. We're having radio silence. Azekah is down. We're the last one standing. You're watching the destruction by Nebuchadnezzar of Yerushalayim in its stages as you're using the Psukim. It is... Very powerful, very moving to be able to read this, to find this, and to stand here in the place that it's talking about. That is one of the more powerful reasons, that is one of the reasons that Lachish is such an important site uh, in, when you learn Tanakh and why it's important to know more about Lachish. In terms of the relationship between Lachish and Azekah, before this, you know, at this time and before, what was that like? Azekah is mentioned as well in, in Yehoshua. It's mentioned as... The border, Azekah is closer to Beit Shemesh, Highway 38, and it's near, uh, it's near uh, Gat, it's facing Gat. So basically Gat is the stronghold of the Philistines, and Azekah is the stronghold of, of the Judahite kingdom, of Malchut Yehuda, and uh, that's the border, that's the defense. So it's, it's one of those cities that defend your entry from the coast into the city. And we get to you know, the Philistine cities or the Philistine Museum, we can talk about that. But one of the things that we hear about the Philistines is that they dominated the coast, but they didn't get too involved in the hills, right? I mean, chariots don't really help you in hills, right? But they dominate the coast and they have power, right? They're, they're controlling the people. So in the time of Shaul, for example, you had to go down to the plishtim and pay a pim in order to sharpen your work tools because you weren't allowed to have a metal smith in Yehuda because they didn't want us to have weapons, powerful weapons. Like they had that level of control, but they maintained control, but they didn't settle, they didn't invade. It's always been the buffer. That's Lachish and Azekah. So it's, the, board, it's the, the, the west and southwestern borders into Yehuda, into the Har. Geographically, we're not at the top of the Lachish just yet, but would this whole idea of Kilonera um, et Azekah, could you actually... Could we actually see Azekar from the top? I'm going to leave there? that surprise for when we get there. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> Just going back to the, the Lachish letter. Sure. That is, I mean, there's nothing, it, it's the sort of thing like, these, are, these things are found all over the country. Not sort so like, much. Okay. We have several very famous ostraca that have been found, but we don't have that many. Right. We don't have that many. Like, if, if you can probably name them all. Yeah, the Lachish letters, the Arad letters, Uh, a few more mitzav chashaviyahu in gezer is there's the gezer that's there's the gezer calendar yeah there's kayafa right right there's, there's a few of them but we don't have that many of them some of them look like they're scribbled just somebody practicing the olive bit <laughs> yeah yeah there's there's a special room in the israel museum dedicated to letters 
writing, and you see a lot of them, but they're they're almost all there. Yeah. Okay, and then like so, you have the illustrator, but then you also have various other things that either mention someone in Tanakh or something that happens also in Tanakh, and like these things. Lachish, well, we do find them occasionally, but what we find mostly is names that are Tanakh sort of names, and archaeologists can tell you. This is a name typical of Malchut Israel, where this is a name typical of Malchut Yehuda, based on the suffix of the name. Yeah. Right. You can tell those kinds of things. Yeah. Like they'll just say like, oh, because the name is uh, Micha, which is short for Michayahu, so he must be from, etc. Um, approaching the top of the hill, there is a hexagonal statue here, a hexagonal structure, which is meant to look like the prisms written, made by Assyrian kings and Mesopotamian kings. A prism meaning it is a solution for writing a lot on a, a small amount of space. So how do you write things, first of all, in ancient times? You write on papyrus, which decays, which corrodes, and doesn't last. Right? So we don't have any papyrus, uh, unless you get really, really lucky and you find something, you know, in a tomb in Egypt. It's very rare that these things survive. But however you write on clay, that's been done from the dawn of human civilization in Mesopotamia. So the Assyrians would write their documents by taking a piece of reed and pressing it into wet clay, and then you bake it, and that's how you keep documents. How do you uh, write? If you write on something flat, like a board, well, first of all, if it's clay, it can break. So they always write on these smaller, like biscuit shapes, very small. You can write on both sides, or you can have it have multiple sides. This particular cylinder is a hexagon. It has writing on six of its sides, so it's compact. You can travel with it, you can put it in one place, and everybody can read it if you know how to read, which was really the privilege of the elite. And this is known as the Sancheriv prism. Now, this is the story of the destruction of Lachish and the uh, the attempt to control, the attempt to destroy Yerushalayim and the mention of Chizkiyahu, but it's the Assyrian side of the story, it's the Assyrian account. And what's important about it is that it tells you the exact same story in many ways. First of all, let me just um, open it up. So we're back to our story in Melachim Bet Perek Yudchet which is when, the, in the 14th year of Chizkiyahu, Sancheriv comes in his campaign of 701 BC, as it's known, 2,700 years ago. So what does Sancheriv do? He taxes him, he finds him heavily, maintaining control over the area, but it's not worth his resources at the time to destroy Yerushalayim. He has a tremendous loss. How, whatever happened, he doesn't, he doesn't destroy Yerushalayim, he doesn't annex it, but he maintains control over the area, and Chizkiyahu continues to pay tribute. And this cylinder tells you the exact same amount of money that was paid by Chizkiyahu to Sancheriv. So that's one of the things that you see. And uh, one of the... Let me see if it says it here. It mentions here numbers of people, 200,150 uh, men, young and old, male and female, horses, mules, donkeys, camels, cattle and sheep without number, and counted them as spoil. So this is part of him uh, boasting about his destruction of Lachish and, uh, and I think 46 other cities in the coast. One of the things he says there, which is the famous word, is as for Hezekiah the Judahite, I captured him in his city like a bird in a cage. Now, bird in a cage is a Syrian lingo for I maintained control over the city, but I didn't destroy it. 
In other words, he didn't succeed in conquering Yerushalayim, but he still made his point, right? But he didn't succeed. So he goes back home to to Nineveh after suffering a heavy loss of his soldiers here and it's a mystery what exactly happened some accounts say that there was some sort of uh, of disease whatever it is a lot of his army die he goes back home to Nineveh and he decorates his throne room with the story of the destruction of Lachish world famous and what's important about that in terms of the the famous words biblical archaeology which this was the actual first biblical archaeological discovery it was discovered in 1840. Uh, and Nineveh, the excavations in Nineveh, and then they suddenly realized, like, wait a minute, this is a biblical story, and this is a biblical site. Wow. So that the kicked off, the discovery of the palace of Sancherev in Nineveh is what kicked off what we know today as biblical archaeology. That's Lachish. Wow. So my father likes to say that you don't need any Amuna for the, st- the story of Sancherev. Right. It's the most right. backed story you have. As I was saying, what, what's written on this prism is literally lines up in terms of names and numbers yeah. with what we read in Sefer Malachim Bet. Yeah, we don't have exact numbers of people who were captive, who were taken captive, and so on. That we don't know. In terms of the money. In terms of the money. Yeah, in terms of the money. That's potentially a super question. Where, where geographically today is Nineveh? Nineveh is in Iraq in Tel Kuyunjik. It's not far from Nebi Yunus, which was a in the city of of uh, Mosul, it's the city of Mosul. Unfortunately, uh, Nabi Yunus was destroyed by ISIS. Right. It was blown up in 2013. But after its destruction, the city was retaken. Uh, they bulldozed, they cleaned up, and they found some Assyrian remains below it. So it ended up doing some sort of service, uh, eventually to, our, to the world. Thank you, ISIS. Uh, we ha- we're standing on the top of, Ashu- of the city of Lachish, and you can start looking at the area and look at the commanding position of Tel Lachish. Yeah. Everything else is below. There's Hare Yehuda, and there's the Shvela. We're moving downwards. So we're protecting all of the cities behind us from this vantage point. And just look how large Lachish is. In ancient standards, this is a pretty big city. It's not Tel Chatzol, right? It's not Chatzol. I think there's a difference of several hundred dunam between Chatzo and uh, Lachish. <laughs> and just that, but you, as in, you, on a clear day, you probably could see, or at night with a fire, you probably could see Azeka from here. All right, so we're just looking at the, that we're standing at the top of the hill. We're looking at the entry point from the Assyrians on their siege ramp uh, as they're making their way into the city. And this is all taken from the Lachish reliefs currently in the British Museum. And you see on the top of the battlements that there are Jews there with sling stones and arrows and rocks, and they're just throwing everything that they can. The panel here, which is taken again from the relief, shows you flaming torches and rocks, and it's all being thrown down on the advancing Assyrians, which you can see. Okay. That's now it. we're standing here at the top, and we have a bit more of a sense of orientation. Why are they coming basically from the south? Would they not have been coming from the north? Um, the north... The north, they just they did. Okay. The question is, how much siege ramp do you actually have here? There might be more siege ramp that hasn't been uncovered. Yeah. Right. Um, but it makes sense that you're going to come in from where the defenses are weaker because behind us is backup. Okay. Yeah. Right. Because it's defending all of that. And so what what, what Sanhariv did, which is a good tactic, 
is to come in and advance in and get rid of the opposition and destroy all the supply lines as well. So that once he gets into Jerusalem, he's also demoralized everyone. He's disheartened them. It's part of the psychological warfare. But he's also cut them off from getting support and aid. And, you know, all your supply lines, which is key, is having supply lines. Because it's really the shvelah that makes all this production. And that's going to have to do with the lachish, with, with the jug handles. That's going to relate to the jug handles as Presumably, well. They, would have, they wouldn't have just like walked up and started shooting. They would have surrounded the city for a yeah, while. Yeah, of course. There would, be a, there would be a camp below there and they lay out the ramp and they probably had a few other ramps as well. Right. You know? um, but look at the fields below. How far the fields can go. Imagine that it was, it was cultivated slightly differently 2,700 years ago, but it's the natural place for cultivating crops. And that's, that's part of the power of the city is that it controls this entire area. And that has to do with taxes and tax collection as well. Production, tax collection, uh, that's what makes it an important administrative center. We're going to see that when we get to the, to the fortress. We'll talk about that. You asked earlier a question of why the attack was from the south. Yeah. Um, we're, we're standing at the top here and there's a plaque which shows you on the map Sancheriv's campaign and it talks about the various stages of the campaign based on the Syrian documents and also destruction layers. So you're seeing Mesopotamia, you're seeing Nineveh on the Euphrates which is northern Iraq and you're seeing how he went from Nineveh to Karkemish. We know Karkemish from the story of Yoshiahu who was killed by Paronecho on his way to Karkemish, which is on the Oront, which is on the Euphrates River, it's in Turkey, and moving down through the land of Hamat, to through the Phoenicians, Tso and Sidon, and all the way down to, through the coast from the west, down south, and then turning east and making his way up north to Jerusalem. So he's first of all gets rid gets rid of all of the uh, the coast. And it shows you the proximity to Egypt when you realize that Egypt comes to the aid of Chizkiyahu and fails. It's, it shows up in one pasuk, but it's a very important story. That's actually a story which uh, is not mentioned in Tanakh other than in one passing pasuk. I wrote a whole article about it. I called it Chizkiyahu Taharka Sancheriv, The Untold Story. It's like we mentioned earlier that there's every that this is a story that has so much wealth of information. Think of it. How, what do we have from the story? We have the, the account in Tanakh. We have the account in the prisms by Sanhiri. We have the, the Lachish reliefs in his throne room. We have the site of Lachish's destruction itself. We have the remains of the Assyrian and the Jewish presence here. We also have the water cistern in Yerushalayim, which most hold is that one dug by uh, Chizkiyahu. There are oppositions to that, but that's the generally what's, what's assumed. And then there is the wall, the broad wall, which I grew up literally on that wall. So we have all of that stuff. Like It's so perfect. What else could be missing? I want to just show you one pasuk while we're here and show you how there's one little pasuk in Tanakh which opens up an entire world to understanding Egypt and the relationship of our involvement to the geopolitics of the region. Here is, we have the famous story of Rav Shakeh who comes to taunt the people in Yerushalayim and to dishearten them. This is part of psychological warfare. He speaks to them in Hebrew instead of Aramaic, which is the official language, the administrative language, in order to have the people revolt. It's a story which is completed with the Gemara and Sanhedrin about Shivna having people go against Chizkiyahu and try to open the gates. It's a great story. Now, in Melachim Bet, Perek Yutet, Pasuk Chet, Vayashov Rav Shakeh, Vayimtza et Melech Ashur Nilcham al-Livna, Kishama Kinasami Lachish. Okay, so the destruction of Lachish is complete. 
It's a sm- it's in flames. It's destroyed, and he goes to Livna. Vayishma el tirhaka melech kush lemor hinei yatzali ilachem itach. Vayashav vayishlach malachim bezchiyah lemor, etc., etc. I'll be back, and he never is back. So he goes. He leaves. He abandons ship because Sancheriv abandons ship because he hears he's been distracted by Tirhaka Melech Kush coming to fight him. What does Tirhaka Melech Kush have to do with the price of tea in China? Taharka or Tirhaka Taharka Melech Kush was later Melech Kush at the time he was the general of the Kushite, the Nubian kingdom, which took control of Egypt. And it's what's called the Kushite dynasty, the 25th dynasty, when the Nubians of Eretz Kush, modern-day Sudan, took control of the kingdom of Egypt and ruled Egypt. So, so Sancheriv sent, uh, sent Rav Shakeh to taunt Chizkiyahu and to say, who is this, this uh, Melech Mitzrayim who you lean on him? If you lean on it, it's going to puncture your hand. You can't trust Egypt. What's he talking about? Tirhaka was Egypt's alliance with Yehuda to come and help him against Assyria, except that didn't really work too well for him and ended up leading to the Assyrian kings, the successors of Sancheriv, who are Esar Chadon and Ashurbanipal, his son and his grandson, invading Egypt, which never happened. So this had a tremendous consequence on Egypt as well, on the geopolitics of the region, leading to the establishment of a new dynasty in Egypt. That's a whole story. So climbing Talachish was really incredible. Uh, it's like a very easy teal, quote unquote. Um, and as Nachel referenced a few times, the Park Authority have been investing loads of time and REMI tax dollars uh, to really make the site more accessible, um, both in terms of like, just, you know, being able to get to the top of the tell itself. You know, uh, if someone you know, uh, needs easy access, it's very, very, very easy to do. Um, but I think Nachel said it best that there is really nothing that could compare to walking these sites with a Tanakh in your hand and with a good tour guide um, seeing and feeling these places. And it adds another dimension to the stories that you can't get from sitting in a classroom and learning. Exactly. And there might not be a Chiddush to be learnt from standing on top of Tel Lachish or Tel, or Tel Azekal or anywhere else. Um, it might not suddenly help you to understand the Nevoah or you know, a chapter of Tehillim, but it's the difference between reading a book on how to swim and jumping into the deep end of the pool. I mean, you can understand, you know, every word of Sefer Malachim, but walking up Tal Lachish and looking out in the distance to see if you can see Tal Azekal, wading through Chizkiyahu's tunnels, it gives you a whole nother depth of understanding that's practically impossible to replicate. Having said that, there are other things you can do or places you can visit, not necessarily even in Israel, um, that can give you a deeper understanding and perhaps even a deeper connection to the Tanakh, to the Bible. Um, and Nachiel then took us somewhere else that I certainly didn't know existed. Uh, I don't think you did either, Ariel. Um, but it was loads of fun. Um, and you can also listen out uh, just as we sort of get out of the car again for my attempt at humour. Um, I don't really think it landed though. Uh, but listen for yourselves. Okay, so now we have got in the car, we've driven for about 45 minutes. We are now in the depths of Ashdod, uh, Ashdod where I've only been before to go to the beach. Uh, we're now in the midst of Ashdod and mm. where you will find, hidden away, tucked away in Ashdod, the Museum of Tarbut HaPlishtim, the Museum of Philistine Culture. Nachliel, why have you brought us here? 
First of all, because it's a museum and museums are awesome and I love museum. I'm your museum guide. Anything about Jewish history, Tanakh, archaeology and museums, you can look me up and I'll probably geek out. Um, I love museums and this museum is a small treasure in the city that nobody really thinks of as a place that has museums, but it's a Philistine city from the time of Tanakh and therefore there is a museum that's relevant to the Plishtim. We were talking about Tanakh, we were talking about the Jewish city of Lachish. Now we're going to talk about the city of Gath, which while it was captured several times uh, by the Jewish kingdom, it's a Philistine city. It's the most important Philistine city is Gath. We know about Goliath, the Plishti, who comes from Gath. And the excavations from Gath, the material that was found in Gath, some of it's in the Israel Museum. The best parts are usually in the Israel Museum from these cities. But a lot of those treasures are here in this museum. This museum is the collection of the Philistine material culture, which is, archaeology, which is archaeological lingo for pots, plates, pans, and anything that, uh, that survived. And Ashdod as a city, it's not, is it mentioned in Tanakh anywhere? Yes, it's one of the five cities of Plishtim. It's mentioned Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gat, Ekron, and Aza. Awesome. I'm excited to uh, experience the oxymoron of a Philistine museum. Great. Yes. There's more to show than so now we're inside the museum, the museum of the Plishtim. Wow. Now we've driven about an hour. We've come from Lachish. On Lachish, we were standing at the top of a mountain mm -hmm. in the midday sun, boiling hot. Now we're standing in a nice, cool, air-conditioned museum. What's the difference between, apart from that, what's the difference between learning about something or Tanakh from being on top of a hill, being here in the museum. The advantage of being in a museum is that you can see the collections from several different sites in one place. It's kind of like a zoo is for animals around the world or a botanical garden is from plants from different habitats. So you get to see a lot of cultures in one place. When you do that, you have, if it's curated properly, which is also an art in of itself, you can get a broad picture. You can appreciate something. When you go to a site, it has its other advantages, but there's only so much you can do. But you can go to one museum and see 4,000 years of culture and history in several hours. Yeah. Museum is where the museum is the only place you can do that, right? Yeah. So that's the advantage of being in a museum. And this museum is unique in having collections of uh, major finds from all of the Philistine cities. So it's called the Museum of the Philistine Culture. And what this museum attempts to do is to portray the Philistines as they are, not as the terrible biblical foe as we have them, which is really uh, a completely different perspective, right? So that's what we're, we're going to see here. We're going to see here daily life, materials, what did they eat, how, what did they eat out of, who did they worship, what were their names, what did they wear, you know, how did they, all these different things we're going to see. And we're, that tells us a lot about who they are. So at the entrance of the museum, we have uh, two exhibits. One of them is about migration and one of them is about, is about destruction and devastation. And that's really the background to uh, who the Philistines are and where they come from. Let's take a look at the first exhibition. What we know about the Philistines is that they come from the Aegean Sea. They come from the, basically the area of the Greek islands. And the question is, why did they come here? What did they want? What happened back home? Why did they come here? And they brought their culture with them. So that's one of the, some of the things we're gonna see. We're gonna see similarities between what we find here and ancient Greek. Even if you're looking at a little bit of this, this is from Greece, right? This is from, some of this is from uh, Cyprus, but then you're gonna see it here in Philistine cities. So th there's a beautiful Pasuk in Amos, which tries to say, 
about Klal Yisrael. You think you're such hot stuff because you came out of Egypt into Eretz Yisrael. Don't make such a big deal about yourself. You're not such hot stuff. Hello, at Yisrael, I but but I brought the Philistines from Kaftor to here too. So I'm going to take favoritism to you if you don't act appropriately. And that is, the assumption is that Kaftor is uh, one of, is in the IJNC. There's a discussion of what is Kaftor, because there's also Kaftorim, Yotzimi Kaftor, Yerushum, Vayishvu Tachtam in Devarim. So Rashi there says, Kapod Ka'e Deatvin, Deatimi Kapodkia, or something, Kapodokia is in Turkey. But what part of Turkey? Closer to, fine. So what is Kaftor? So um, what it says here is the Philistines emerged from people who lived in the Aegean Basin, Anatolia, Cyprus, and Greece. Anatolia today is Turkey, so that's the Kapodkia. Right? Fortified cities existed in southern Greece whose inhabitants lived in hierarchical societies led by a class of warrior nobles, so kind of like castles and knights. <laughs> Their culture eventually spread to Crete, known in the Bible as Kafto. So one of the interpretations of Kafto is Kretim as well. There's different... Uh, how, how to read that. By the end of the 13th century BCE, in other words, 1200s, many of the Aegean cities had been destroyed and waves of refugees were forced to, to leave Crete and other places seeking a new homeland. Among them were those who later became known as the Philistines. There is a lot to unpack in that introduction. It's, it's being very, very careful with that balance of Tanakh and the academic. It's very well done what they did here. But the later became known as the Phil, as the Plishtim. We call them uh, Plishtim, meaning they're Polishim. They invaded. Uh, some people can call them Sea People. Um, there's discussions about the Philistines trying to invade Egypt, and they were repelled by Ramses the Third. We're talking about a period of time known generally as the Late Bronze Period, the collapse of the Late Bronze Period, like the year 1270 BCE, in which there were cataclysmic events uh, happening throughout the Mediterranean basin, which caused a lot of migration. In that context, we have the Philistines leaving because of issues that were happening back home, looking for new places to settle. And they come and they settle on the coast and they become known as the Plishtim. With the concept of who became known as Philistines, Philistines later, that takes us to a story which is well discussed in, in Dat Mikra, Yol Elitzur, discussed this, the Plishtim of Avraham. If you consider them, they're very clearly not the same Plishtim as the time of the Shoftim. As they're definitely not the vicious warriors. They're agrarian people. They have a Semitic name. Avimelech is Semitic, right? It's not uh, names like Achish or Padi or Delilah or Goliath. These are names which have no Semitic connection. Um, but we have, uh, we have them also living in a different place. Like where is the Plishtim of Avraham living? In Graal. Graal is far away from the coast. There's Nachal Graal, there's, the, I mean, the, disc, the, the topic of Graal is a very complex one. I actually wrote a paper on it for Professor Igal Levine, Barilan, who we just saw. So there's like four different suggestions as where Graal is, and then there is, uh, there's Nachal Graal, and then there's Graritiki Saltus, which is the, the imperial region known as Graal, which is a region for tax purposes, which is mentioned uh, in the Mishnah as well, in, in the Talmud Yerushalmi. It's mentioned in the Talmud Yerushalmi as well. Um, as uh, Garitiki, is it, is it considered to be part of Shvi'it or not? Is it an area that's pagan or not? So it's, it's a known area. One of the beautiful things about the Philistine Museum is that they try to make it approachable, understandable, relatable, and to children as well as adults. So if you look throughout the museum, there's also plaques written in Hebrew and English with psukim from the Torah highlighted. It's beautifully done with pictures. 
And they also have these little plaques with Hebrew and English with fun little quotes or songs. So this is the women of Troy from Euripides. And there's a picture of people who look like the Philistines. How do we know what the Philistines look like? Hopefully we'll see that later, but it's based on pictures from Egyptian tombs, from Ramses uh, III, I think, fighting against the, uh, the Philistine invasion. So that's how we get the images of what they look like. And they make them look like here's a family with kids and they have a wailing dog. And there is a, there is a song here, as the smoke soars on wings at the heaven, so sinks our city to the ground before the spear. With furious haste, both, both fire and foemen's spear devour each house. Okay, because it's talking, if this is from Greece, and it's talking about something tragic, and this is the background, so it's bringing it to home. They come from Greece. They're really trying to drive that point home. This is where they come from. And you're looking here at a map, and here it says Mamlechet Achitim, the Hittite Empire. So you see Anatolia, this is the Chitim. Then you look, here is Kena'an. There is Mitzayim, there is Yavan. So it's really anchoring you. And now you have this map showing you uh, the land and the ocean trajectory of various migrating cultures who were leaving the Mediterranean basin. Here they are trying to invade Egypt in boats. Here they are succeeding to come into Canaan. This is what you're actually seeing, is how they migrated, what they brought with them. There are seafarers, there's boats, there's cattle, wagons. Like a beautifully done animated, well done animated. sort of projected map. Look. There's a beautiful picture of a boat sailing across the Mediterranean with Philistines looking for a new home. This is great stuff. It's humanizing the Plishtim. Right. It's showing us they are people. You know, they have a story. And this museum is here to tell their story. We're looking at statuettes, little figurines of probably deities, Avodah Zarah of the Philistines. We don't really know what their uh, what their idolatry was. We can just surmise based on what we find. But they're not local. They're not Semitic, but they end up blending in with the Semitic. And we're going to see that in some of the things that we found. They start blending. We have, a, uh, we have a topographical map here showing you the Kingdom of Israel. We have Megiddo, Bet She'an, Shiloh, Bet El, Yerushalayim, etc. Hebron, Be'er Sheva. This is the hill. The Plishtim are in the Shefila. And in the Shvelah here, we have like Lachish and Azekah and Ashdod, Ekron, Gat, Ashkelon, Aza. Gat is the easternmost, the innermost city. That's where we have the story of David hiding in by Achish Melech Gat. We're going to talk about that. And this is Yehuda, this whole area. And the, the suggestion of Tziklag, there's a discussion of where Tziklag might be, but Tziklag is an area controlled by the Philistines. These are the, Sarnei Plishtim are the five big administrative centers, but obviously they're controlling this entire region. Do we know why it is that the Philistines sort of never ventured that much further into um, inland? Perhaps because they did not have the power to take control of it. It's spreading themselves too thin. Um, you control your ground, you're, you're holding that area, you don't invade the hills. They're very good with the coast. And it's also very possible that they didn't have such interests and that we paint them that way because they were vicious enemies for us, but that doesn't mean that they were there to conquer us. They were there controlling that area. We had their fights, we had our fights with them. We had times that we got along with them, but it wasn't really, as they weren't the enemies that, in day in day life, there wasn't, they weren't there to take over the land. They were just looking for another place to live and they were doing fine over there. Don't step on me, I won't step on you. So then in the northernmost point of what it says on this map is like stage two 
Philistine territory, there's Tel Kassile. Tel Kassile is Tel Aviv. So, yeah, so we know that the Philistines came here in several different waves. And what happens usually with immigrants is by the time the next uh, wave of immigrants come, the earlier ones have already acculturated, mm -hmm. right? They're already speaking English, right? So, you know, you come to Israel now and you have Beit Shemesh and you have Modi'in and you have Ra'anana. You don't have to actually learn Hebrew anymore. Right? <laughs> so speaking of which, I'm going to show you uh, a writing which is in Hebrew letters by a Philistine king. And we're going to read it in just a moment. But the first thing I want us to notice is the script. It's Ktav Ivri. It's Ktav Ivri. And that tells us that the Philistines who came from a country that doesn't have an alphabet necessarily, the Greeks adopted the Phoenician alphabet, which is basically ancient Hebrew, same, pretty much the same thing, adopted it through trade later. Uh, they had a different kind of, uh, of writing system. They adopted this. Okay? So what it says more or less, we just stood here watching Professor Igalavin of the uh, Israel Studies Department in Barilan reading every single letter and talking about where there's a discussion and a question. I'm going to use the, the, the writing here on the, on, on the wall, make it simpler. It says, Habayit asher bana achish ben padi, ben yasad, ben ada, ben yar, sar ekon, lepatagia gevirato. Tevarchu vetishamru vetarich yama vetevarich arutso. So he built something, he gives his name, he attributes himself to a goddess, and he asks for a blessing. The name here is Achish ben Padi, and he is Sar Ekron. We have the name before. Where do we have Achish? Achish, Melech Gat. Right? In Tehilim, David says, Tefilal David Shalom Belo, and he talks about Avimelech, uh, even though he's not Avimelech. So there's a discussion on why are we throwing back to the original connection to the Plishtim, to Avraham, right? But that's a Semitic name, right? This is, Achish is not Semitic. Padi, we also have the name Padi showing up in a separate story. I think it's with Chizkiyahu HaMelech, but this is earlier. This is much earlier. And it's talking about Achish ben Padi. And um, he's a Sal Ekon, so he's the minister of the city of Ekon. He's not a Melech. They don't have Melechim. Apparently they have uh, Saranim, which sounds like Tiranos, like a tyrant, like a minister. So there's Sarnei Plishtim. They have a different kind of administrative system. And he is Sal Ekon, and his name is Achish. So we have his name. And you already see that they've acculturated, they've picked up the language. Right, they picked up the, the alphabet. So that tells us about them. Okay, and this was found in Ekron. We'll look going back one second and Sure. So the Plishtin they sort of adopted the Hebrew script. Yes. And we're saying here like a lot of their They brought in their Aegean stuff right. and they also absorbed, they blended with the local. But that's sort of like that willing acceptance to take on other cultures and other things. That's sort of where we get this idea that the Philip the Plishtim were uncultured and sort of that view we have, which is... But that's a preconception. Right. right. But I'm saying it's not that they had none, but they did, they, I mean, they did adopt... They, did, they, did, they of... did blend in. I mean, another place we see this, for example, is in the story of the Aaron being captured. Because mm -hmm. the Aaron is sent to the temple of... What's the name of the god we sent to? Tanakhquiz. Dagon. Dagon. Now, Dagon, we think that Dagon is the great fish, right? It's right. really Dagon. It's, uh, it's a Ugaritic god. It's like Kna'ani. It's the god of grain, okay. of Dagan. They adopted the local. So that's yeah. an example where we see it. And we only know that because we've studied the material in archaeology. So we're able to say, like, that's what actually happened. Yeah. Like, it fits. It makes sense. It's an incredible thing right, to put those two, those two together. And it's there in the Tanakh. He just never paid attention to it because he didn't know the archaeology. Right? Okay. We have a bathtub here in the center surrounded by displays of 
pottery from daily use. We have uh, jewelry, gold jewelry as well. We have a pomegranate shaped marble perfume box of some sort. We have a, what is number three? What do they call it? It's a, Ivory handle and ram shaped stopper. Okay, so the stopper is the cover, ram shaped handle. And there's jewelry, little silver earrings and nose rings and gold. And uh, this is stuff that I guess belonged to more uh, well-to-do uh, Philistines. We also have silver here and some writing. So let's look at the, the silver. Number four is called Slices of Silver, Bits A Kesef. Um, we know that they did business. This is related to the story of, uh, in the time of Shaul. One second, let me, let me actually find it. I think it's, it's let, me, let me bring this up, it's a great story. Okay, let me just find it. Okay, so we have the story in Shmuel Aleph Perek Yud Gimel in Pasuk Yud Tet. V'charash lo yimatze b'chol eret Yisrael, ki amru plishtim pen yasu ha'ivrim cherev ochanit. So there is no metallurgy, no metal smiths in Malchut Yisrael because the Philistines don't want us to be able to, you know, fight them, to go to war with them. So there's a level of control that they have there. V'yirdu kol Yisrael ha'plishtim liltosh ish et macharashto ve'et eto ve'et kardumo ve'et macharashto. You want to sharpen your tools, you have to uh, go to the plishtim. Vehayta ha-pitzira pim la-machreshot ve-la-etim ve-lishlosh ha-kilshon ve-la-hakardumim u-la-atsiv ha-dorvan. All of these tools have to be sharpened for the right price of a pim. What is a pim? What is a pim? Well, we have here a measurement found in Ashdod, a bronze measurement, which is uh, a bronze weight, which is uh, number two. It's a bronze weight. And um, we also have here various items which have to do with buying and selling. So number three here is an ostracon, is a clay writing, which talks about um, uh, transport of grains. And we have a signature, which is what you need for a transaction to authenticate it, like assigning your name. So this is a, a seal. And then we have silver bits. How, is silver, how are silver bits used? You put them on a scale, you have a weight on one side and you have bits of silver on the other. That is a mishkal, mishkal shekel kesef. A pim is a measurement. A pim, it's, I think it's a five-sixths of a shekel. A five-sixths or two-thirds, I don't remember which one it is. Because there's also, there's beka, gera, netzef, and pim. So netzef and pim are like, one is two-thirds, one is five-sixths. But we know the exact measurement because we found the stone weight that says in it, pim. And that was in, found in archaeology. Like, oh, it's not the British pims, of course. <laughs> Nobody knows how to drink that. How many that. of those, as in, you said you found the pim? I know recently, not so long ago, they found the becca. How many of those weights have they found, actually? Um, I'm sure dozens because I've seen them in several museums. I've seen them in the Israel Museum. There's a whole set. I've seen them in the Living Torah Museum. Rabbi Deutsch in, uh, in Borough Park, and I've seen some at the Met, and I've seen some at the other museums. They might even have some here. Pim, we haven't found a lot of it. It's been found, so now we know what a Pim is, the exact measurement. Pim and Netzef. And these are e e Egyptian standard measurements. Yeah. And walking around a lot of the, like the decorations, I suppose, on, on the various bits of pottery, and some of these, you know, the, we saw the, um, what do we call them? The Little icons, the little icons. Yeah. Oh, um, I mean, they're very figurines. Figurines, thank figurines. you. Um, they, I mean, they seem very intricate. They seem very, I mean, like clearly a lot of like their works of fairly high, high level uh, 
artisanship. Remember, they're that's coming from Greece. Right, and th- I was saying this, that, that's fairly typical of, of the Plishtim, mm-hmm. or yeah, you know, these, these are just... Yeah. You can say so. One. We found them in all of these cities, and, um, and these are beautiful paintings. It's fact, they use some of these paintings, which are very Aegean. Some are imported, some are made locally, and they're using the style from Greece of that time. You know, we're talking about th- 12th, 13th century Greece, later. So they're, they're in touch with Greece, there's trade connections, um, and they have their own diets, uh, by the way, that they eat. For example, pigs. We know that they ate pigs. Um, I think that there have been some studies that tell us where the pigs come from, and they're not local pigs, which is really cool. You can study those by studying the bones. So there's a little weight here that's in the shape of a pig, and oh, you okay. won't find pig bones in Israelite cities. Right, you'll find right. So those are the kinds of things they brought with them. It's interesting as well that they were sort of, they must have been then importing, presumably they were importing live pigs. They weren't importing, yeah. Maybe they were raising them already, raising them there, but these aren't local pigs. Right. Yeah, archaeology, one of the things about modern archaeology, you can study um, animal remains, and based on all these chemical studies and even DNA studies, you can find out where they come from. Right. So we've found, for example, in Tel Rehov, uh, an apiary, a beehive, uh, which, was, which were Anatolian bees. So they brought in bees from Turkey wow. to, to make honey. There was an exhibition about that in the Eretz Israel Museum called Land of Milk and Honey, of course. The most exciting Philistine story we have is, of course, Shimshon uh, taking out all the Philistines with him as he is chained to the pillars there, made a mockery of, and he's blinded. And he says, he says, Zuchrenina va... Zuchrenina. Zuchrenina. I'm, I'm, the song's in my head. Zuchrenina <laughs> Let me take myself out and take the, as many Philistines as I can with me. And that happens as he is chained between the pillars of a palace of a temple uh, in Gat. And there's two pillar bases here that were found in Gat from about the 10th century, so we're talking a little bit after Shimshon's time, but, uh, but there's the bases here. And the museum has a screen here that shows you <laughs> an image of the temple, so to speak, and you're supposed to stand there and press these, uh, these uh, pillars on the wall, and it's supposed to knock them down and come crashing down. And I've done this several times, and today, it wasn't working, which is just wonderful. Um, it's kind of fun. You get these bloopers. But in this part of the museum, they're also talking about the afterlife and burial, because they've actually found a whole bunch of uh, burials, Philistine uh, skeletons in Ashdod, or was it Ashkelon? I think it was in Ashkelon. Of course, this was kept undercover for obvious reasons in Israel until they were finished. They don't have any trouble. But we don't really know that much about their burial practices. We just found bodies buried. Okay, so apparently in Ashdod they found a larnax, which is a kind of basin for burial in the Philistine city of Ashdod in the 12th century. So, um, and these are from, uh, the, now here we have two little figurines of women, and uh, you can tell by their body language what they're doing. Describe it. Um, there's uh, one woman has two hands on her head, right. like, oh no, in mourning, ripping her hair out, or mowing. One of them has one on her stomach and one on her, one on her head, wailing. And mourning, um, and in burials as well, they had uh, they they would put broken pottery, I guess, uh, puncturing pottery or breaking pottery in burial. That's an interesting kind of concept that they had. So I guess they, you're not going to use it anymore in the afterlife. It's not like the Egyptians, very different. It's like burying, like Geniza with the body, maybe. Uh, yeah, because it's damaged. Yeah, as opposed to the Egyptians, I mean. It's nobody nobody plunders a Geniza. I mean, that's not really true anymore. But nobody <laughs> plunders, you know, like this is broken pottery. I mean, who cares about it? But 
but uh, King Tut, I mean, he got lucky. <laughs> he wasn't found. Now, uh, the last part of the exhibition uh, is, uh, is before the, all the multimedia stuff and costumes. Uh, it talks about the relationship between Israel and Philistia. Like, are they good neighbors? Are they enemies? And it shows them in different ways. It shows you uh, Shimshon and Lila. There's some famous art here. When is this from? Augusto, I'm not sure. There's different art, different artists that tells you here. Gustav Doré. It is Gustav Doré. See, I thought so. So it has Gustav Doré. Uh, Gustav Doré's images of the story of Shimshon and Lila. And here's the famous Shimshon knocking down the pillars. Really cool. Very dramatic. So the relationship of Israel to the Plishtim, the way they're describing it here in the museum, is that the Philistines had a more superior uh, societal structure, and their superiority caused a lot of antagonism, uh, even though they did have on and off good relations. I mean, Shimshon was marrying into the Plishtim, right? We didn't really find anybody making a big deal about that. But then on the other hand, uh, he was doing that to get at them. So we have also the, the enmity between us as well. They've been here like a, like a thorn in our backside for a long time. So um, here is a jug. But what's important about this jug is what it actually says on it, which is Rafa. What would that be? Well, we know the name Rafa from the story in Shmuel Bet. It says, There are those who say, you know, the Midrash that says that Goliath is the daughter of Orpa, but uh, it's written differently. I just want to get it. Here we go. Okay, so and the, we have a jug here. We have a jug that was found in Gat, and it says on it, Resh Pe Aleph, Rafa. What do those words mean? We open Tanakh, and at the end of Shmuel Bet, in, in so they're ongoing antagonizing. They're ongoing battles. So David is really tired. And then we have this guy, Yishbi Benov, Asher Bilidei Harafa. So he's one of the children of Harafa. And he comes to try to kill David, and Avishai comes and help him, and it's after that point everybody says, listen, David, you've got to stay home. You can't go to battle anymore. It's a liability. So Harafa, Rafa is a name of a Philistine. So this can belong to a person, which is common on jugs. There's a person, the name of a person or the name of the contents. Oh, this is uh, the battle in Haregilboa. Yeah, David fa Shaul falls on his sword. This is a picture. We don't have a, uh, anything about it here. These are all pictures. We have pictures here of the stories in Tanakh in which we realize that the Pilishtim are a mortal enemy and we're constantly losing to them with a few periods of success with David HaMelech later on in Baal Paratzim. But most of the time we're having trouble with the Philistines. Uh, they're there all the time as like keeping us in check. Um, so this is a picture of Shaul with his children on Mount Gilboa. I just want to say, as an, as, as, a, as an artist, this image of Shaul running with his children out to battle on Halagilboa. Today they actually call um, Yeah, these are the Plishtim coming towards him. Um, but this is, this picture of, of I'm explaining, this no. picture of, of Shaul uh, coming to battle with his children, there's a Midrash which says that when Shaul knows he's going to die, Right, he, like Shmuel tells him, like you're, you're going to die. And he says, What was a person do when he knows? Even there's Ayn Hara and the Shuk, he keeps his family at home. He doesn't want people seeing his family. And here, Shaul knows he's going to die, but he knows that this is his redeeming moment. This is what he needs to do. 
And, uh, and so at that point, the Midrash says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu Kore Lemalachei Asharet, and he says, Re'u B'riah Shabarati Ba'olami. It's like, look what he's doing, because he knows he, this is, he's not running away anymore. He's not escaping. He's doing what he needs to do. He's doing a tikkun. So that image of him running out on his horses, knowing he's about to die, but going in glory, was something I always wanted to paint. And this picture reminded me of it, even though these are the Philistines. <laughs> but it really reminded me of it. And that is a very difficult picture to watch. <coughs> Taking a story like David and Goliath, which is obviously one of the most famous, I guess, interactions between Am Yisrael and the Pelishtim in Tanakh. The underdog, yeah. David and Goliath. What, what, is, what, what is what we see here in the museum add to our understanding of, say, that narrative or other similar narratives in Tanakh? Um, I, I, I believe that it's similar to the geography. The geography and the archaeology come together to tell you where the story happens. And when you know where it happened, suddenly the layout makes sense. Strategic moves make sense. Moral decisions make sense. When you know who the Plishtim are, you can start asking questions about how did we get along? When did we choose to fight them? What, what is it about David hanging out with Achish Melech Gat and then going and killing people and pretending to be on his side? Like all of that stuff, when we understand who the Plishtim are, we have the opportunity to appreciate a little bit more the nuance of the story and what's going on. What's going to come of that? Who knows? I mean, you never know until it happens, and then it strikes you, and you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't think of that. You understand Pshat and Apasuk suddenly, because you now know that they're, they come from the IGNC, and it puts you together, with, and you put together that Pasuk from Hoshea, and Aram Mikir, and then you put that together with them sending the, the, the Aron Abrit to Mikdash Dagon, and you realize Dagon is local, you suddenly learn a little bit more about them. It, it not only humanizes them, which is what the museum does, but it changes the way you look at the psukim. You suddenly realize that there's significance to that. It tells you a lot about them. It doesn't always come out to helping you with your emunah, with your pasuk, but it gives you a fuller picture. Instead of insert name of enemy, okay, it's like going through plishtim. Okay, this time it's Aram, and this time it's Midian, and this time it's this, and we did the same thing, and back and forth, and this time it's 40 years, 50 years, 30 years, 80 years. Like, it, it gives it more character. It makes it easier to remember it, too. Right. Yeah, I think it's easy when you read Sukkim and you, you see mentions of the plishtim. So in your head, when they're not being mentioned, they're kind of just standing on the side with their swords waiting to like enter right. stage right and enter battle. Whereas where you come in somewhere like this, you can imagine there was a whole society going on there, what they were building, there was a people there. And you can start thinking about that dynamic between yeah. them in, on the coast and then Bnei Israel, Am Yisrael. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this might be like putting a bit more of a, only looking at it in hindsight, but you know, when you see a people who have come here, potentially after, after Jews, or interacting with you know, Am Yisrael later, and then you see them adopting so much of the existing culture here and then you wonder and then you wonder perhaps that's why we were so we were we, so like we the Jewish people were so like keen to keep them at arm's length you would think right but then when we study what we ourselves did we find that we do the same thing we adopt a lot of things from the surrounding nations and when you delve into archaeology into ancient or eastern history into the ugaritic mythologies and then you read through tanakh it's very tempting to take the easy way out and to say okay we were just adopting what they did here and we wrote this in the it, it it forces us to look at things in a more nuanced way and to ask more difficult questions about so what exactly was going on we, we get really shocked when we see, you, you, you dig up in, in First Temple period um, Jewish settlements, Jewish cities, and you find all this Avodah Zarah. 
And then you realize, like, but this is what the Naveen were constantly complaining about. Yeah. So, like, oh, we're actually seeing it. No, it couldn't actually happen. And then you realize, like, it happened in a, in a lot more challenge. It was a lot more difficult than what you thought. It wasn't just Jews acting like Jews, but also doing these things. Perhaps we started adopting names. We see that in the Hellenistic period as well, right? We have started having names like Alexander became a Jewish name. Classic Hellenist. Classic Hellenist. Yeah. Right? And then I didn't even realize as I was saying that, like, <laughs> <laughs> Alexander became a Jewish name, right? And then we have Antigonos. I live on Antigonos Street, right? You have all these different names, and they just became, right? They became, uh, became Jewish, Judaized. They became Jewish, he Hebraicized, right. right? So we have that. Uh, and we, that's been going on for millennia. We've gradually adopted, we've bounced against, we learn, and when we see this material culture and then we see similarities and differences, you can start realizing it's very challenging to live around our neighbors and not to be influenced by them, even just a little bit, you know. And then you realize the Torah keeps on talking about that. Um, let me moment, pause for a moment. It's my Bar Mitzvah Parsha. I have to remember this. Um, Right? The, the, the Torah warns against uh, doing zivachim together, which was a common thing. Right? We have mizbeacher, we have mizbechot everywhere, we find them all over the country. And they say, like, you know, we're, we're, we're doing our own thing. I'm just, we're just using the same mizbech, and one thing leads to another. And, you know, then you start intermarrying, and then you start bringing avodazara into your home, and it's a slippery slope, and it's very difficult, especially when you don't have a centralized, authoritative uh, Jewish leadership. Things were very different back then, and we have to factor in those differences. A lot of them we learn from the material culture. You see, what did houses look like? What did eating look like? What did worship look like? What did trade and commerce look like? What did people do? And you realize the challenges that they had. And then you realize, so this is what it looked like to be a common Philistine. And they have a lot in common with their neighbor across the hill. And so, you know, we can get along. We can have like a block party. It's a big deal. We're not that different. You know, love is love. Maybe I'm going to put that in. <laughs> Maybe we're not all that different. And, you know, one, three times a year you go to the Beit HaMikdash. That keeps you in check. But if you don't go to the Beit HaMikdash, you're now in Malchut Yisrael and you're not allowed to go. I mean, the chances are you're going to be a lot more assimilated. So these are challenges that we see through the material culture. We see it happening in the region and we see it happening to, to us. We see it happening to the Philistines. We see it happening to several different people. So museums are the other place to visit to get a better glimpse of the world of Tanakh. Um, as Nachliel said, the benefit of a museum versus an actual site is the fact that you can view artifacts, they have clear explanations, um, you see things from findings from multiple sites all at once. And uh, he gave the excellent analogy of a museum being to archaeology or history to what a zoo is to zoology. The Museum of Philistine Culture in particular uh, does round out the plishtim. And it fills in sort of their character, so to speak. The Plishtim, of course, play the role of the villain throughout much of Nevi'im. Um, but to understand that they were a fully realized culture and people, um, especially when viewed through the eyes of Tanakh, helps us to understand the threat that they posed. Well, I certainly grew up with the attitude that Nachian alluded to, that you know, everyone in Tanakh was a tzaddik. They were righteous. They were all you know, going to the temple, going to the Bet and bringing Korbanot. Um, but of course, that wasn't true. The Nevi'im, the prophets, spend all their time chastising the people um, about uh, Avodah Zarah, uh, etc. Um, and to see the influence that ancient Israeli culture had on the Plishtim, on the Philistines themselves, and vice versa, really does give a broader picture of the challenges they were facing. And again, as Akhil said, how some of those are challenges that we still face you know, three, four thousand years later.
So the final part of our excursion with Nachriel was to debrief at the end of the day. And we weighed out the differences between learning out in the field versus a museum versus a classroom. So let's have a listen. So we've spent all day out in the, uh, in the field and at the, the Philistine Museum. And so as all good tours do, we're, we're ending at a nice uh, Schwama joint here in Ashdod. Um, so I suppose like a question perhaps our, our listeners may be asking is how, how does someone, how, how does an Orthodox Jew, when, when it comes to like questions of, you know, academics are debating whether certain people existed or certain time periods right. actually match up in Tanakh versus in the archaeology. Um, and as we were mentioning before, uh, you know, talking about humanizing the Philistines, humanizing the Philistim, who are these like arch enemies of the Jews throughout, say for Shmuel and Malachim. And then we have this museum that sort of shows them as normal, regular people with everyday lives. How, how do you as an Orthodox Jew, like, how do you approach those apparent contradictions or challenges? Well, I mean, showing them as human beings isn't really a contradiction. I mean, when people go to war, they go to war. But on day-to-day life, it's not like a bunch of uh, orcs in Mordor sitting there, you know, waiting to attack the Shire or Gondor. It's just, you know, like, they go to war when they need to go to war, and they're constantly defending their border. And, like, that was, things were vicious back in the day. Resources were scant. There's always the fear of invaders and marauders, and you just got to be tough. So when we understand it that way... um, it can be challenging when we look at, like, when we want to look at the more primal issues, like, you know, Avraham making a brit with, uh, with Avimelech and Pichol, and that having an impact on our relationship to the Plishtim and the Malchut, like, that's where it can get really tricky. But other than that, it's like, in terms of the Torah, we don't really care too much, or Tanakh, we don't really care too much what their motives are for attacking us. They're a messenger of Hashem in terms of the geopolitical play. Locally, Midian could have had a thousand reasons for attacking us. But at the end of the day, it's playing into a big historical picture. So in that sense, they're just, I guess, in parallel universes. In other words, here's the material core to their archaeology. It's interesting we understand who they are. And here's the story that we read about of how they're important to us. The two are in communication, but they can live separately. I do believe that there's a lot to be gained from that conversation because it's not, not so much about humanizing them but about making them, giving them a picture, drawing a portrait. Like it's not just evil villain, random. In a sense, the two should be in communication because instead of just being insert evil villain, this is a character. We can understand who they were, who their alliances were with, what were their resources, and then you can better understand the story. You can better understand the challenge, and maybe you can draw a conclusion from that in the long run. When you understand who the who the um, Assyrians were, who the Babylonians were, who the Midianim were, it teaches you so much about what's going on. At a certain point, when you amass enough information. It gives you a clearer picture of the geopolitics of what was going on, so you can understand why certain alliances were made, certain coalitions were made, certain rebellions were made. It helps you appreciate more what we were putting up with, like Achav. You know, Achav is mentioned in the Kirk monolith of, uh, of Shalmaneser III. I mean, he's mentioned in, in Assyrian documents. He's acknowledged. What is it that he did? Why is he so important? Why is he worthy of note? And who did he ally with? You realize that when... Pekah ben Ramaliyahu 
uh, got together with Ritzim Melech Haram, which is mentioned in Malachim Bethany Nishayahu, they come to fight against Ahaz. The Syrians tell us they actually allied also with King of Tzor, whose name is Hiram, another Hiram. There's a lot of them. So it, it gives you a picture of, like, it fills in the vacuum. You realize that the story is taking place. It's a real story. So you read Tolkien, right? The, the Fellowship of the Rings is very difficult to read because he just describes every moving leaf and piece of moss in the. But the more you make it real, the more believable it is. And when you go through Tanakh, when you put flesh on these people, they're real players. It's a real scene. And you realize what we're dealing with. And then it makes it a lot more challenging to, to it makes it a lot more, it makes it a lot more real. When you humanize the Pashtim and you wonder, so why do we just kill them all? Like, get rid of them. And you're like, I don't know, that wasn't exactly what the relationship was. Look, they're simple farmers. They're peasants, there's this, there's that. Yeah, their leaders are a bit corrupt. Like, you see, I'm, being, I'm exaggerating. But you realize it, it really changes the question. Like, what is your relationship with these people? It becomes a lot more difficult to, let's say, the, the notion of getting rid of these seven nations. Right? Today, that doesn't really, doesn't really sound well to modern sentiments. You're saying, like, but they're evil. Like, I don't know. It doesn't look like they're so evil. They just have ideas which are spiritually destructive. So you really have to go all out and destroy them. What's going to happen if you get, learn to get along? You draw a lot of conclusions for it today. So I think that in that sense, it's valuable. When you, when you, you can paint a more realistic picture instead of a caricature. And you realize that when we're human beings, like things can be a lot more challenging, a lot more difficult. These are, as, as we're speaking, I'm, I'm thinking about it, right? Yeah. Question is, when you, when, I, you know, like, op, when you now open up Tanakh, and you start reading these stories, like, will you think about the Pushtim the same? Or will I stop to try to absorb this? Well, the classic is like Shaul. So you could sit in a classroom, anywhere, really, and be like, oh, I can't believe Shaul didn't kill all the Amalekim. Like, oh, like we can judge him for not killing like Agar. Uh, one night killing all the animals. And it's like, well, put a sword in your hand and go and kill them all then. Like, it's not Lemaisa. Look, you look today at every American film with the villain. The villain will be standing there with a detonator that will end your country. And you're not, and you're morally corrupt if you shoot him before he tries to kill you. Like, I don't know, why not just take him out? And it, it, as, you said, as you said from Lachesh, you know, like what we would give to understand the Amharic. Like, I'm trying to what? remember who said that, but he was he was a historian in the Hebrew University, I think. Okay. But like you know, as, as you say that as much as we're trying to humanize like the Plishtim, like your average Israelite at the time was also complex. They weren't necessarily as it's a big debate running at the moment, is like how how observant was the you know, quote unquote observant was the average Jew. Even in the time of even, the Bethany Even the concept Jew wasn't the uh, Israel. Right. You know how how things were from where they to use you know language. Th things were very different, but then again, uh, the concepts were much more primal. So not primitive, but primal. So this is an interesting perspective. Uh, as a result of Christianity, we tend to talk about belief. In other words, there's this conceptual idea that I accept. Right? But that's not what the word emunah actually means. The word emunah, and this is true in the original Arabic as well, 
is that it just is how you act. So do you act like there is a God or not? It's how you act. Which is, which is that's really the idea of emunah. Emunah is like, like omanut, like forming something, imun. It's like all these derivatives of emunah, it means how is my world formed? In what reality do I live? And what the reality do they live doesn't necessarily always add up. Like they were, like Eliyahu Navi says, like pick, pick a side. You can't just hop on both. Just have insurance. It's just in case, you know, Hashem doesn't send me my parnasa, I'm going to buy a lottery ticket. Like, you know, or I'm going to go to work, but I'm also, it's like that we can relate to. But people really lived in a world that was very different and it formed the way they acted. And they said, because the world wasn't necessarily clear and understandable, there's always influence around us. And like, that might work. Let's try that. Right? Why not? How does that contradict? It's not about belief. It's only about how I act. And I see that it works for them, so maybe it'll work for me. Over the course of the day, we've had a chance to see different ways of bringing the Tanakh to life, uh, both in the field and also in the museum as well. I heard about the different, uh, heard about the different uh, pros and cons of both of those methods. Nachliel, any uh, final thoughts on uh, today? This is a lot of fun. I'm really happy for the opportunity to be able to show both the advantages of learning on a site and also learning in the museum where you see things together. I would say the Philistine Museum brings together material from similar sites. They're all Philistine, which is a little different than seeing 20 different you know, periods of time, but it still gives you a sense of how a museum is different. You have the material there with explanations as opposed to finding it in, in the place and trying to figure out why this is important. So you get to see both sides of the coin. I think that's great. It's a great opportunity. We touched on one of the most important uh, sites for learning Tanakh, which is Lachish, in terms of what they found there, in terms of what it brings to life. And then we saw something a little bit more challenging, which is the museum, and it raised so many different questions of, you know, so how do we relate to this and how do we relate to the Tanakh narrative versus the historic narrative? So it's a, it's, it brings up interesting conversations which leave us with food for thought and hopefully more to think about, more to discuss, more to discover. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's uh, been a pleasure. We should... Get back in the car. So that's what we've got time for for this week's episode of the Current Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we really do hope you enjoyed. Um, we want to say thank you again uh, publicly to Nachli Al-Salavan um, for giving us the time, for taking us around Israel uh, and for showing us those amazing things. It really did open our eyes uh, to everything that's available and just and just what a difference it, it really does make uh, to go out into the field or into a museum with a Tanakh in your hand um, and how that can really change the way that you look at uh, Tanakh. If you want to get in touch with Nachliel, um, you can reach him uh, by his website, uh, museumtours.co.il um, or uh, Instagram, Facebook, he's at the Museum Guy Israel. Um, you can book a tour with him if you're in Israel, definitely try and get in touch with him, uh, even if you're not. As at the beginning of the episode, Nachel has pioneered the virtual tours um, where he sort of takes you not just all around Israel, but all over the world uh, to look at different artifacts, different museums, different sites. Um, you can book that for yourself, for your family, for your class, uh, whoever it is, so definitely do get in touch with him. We'd also like to thank uh, the people at Talachish, the Israeli Parks Authority, and the people at the uh, Museum of Philistine Culture in Ashdod uh, for allowing us to walk around uh, and to record there. Uh, Arie, if people would like to get in touch with us, how can they do so? You can send us an email and we'd love to hear your feedback on this episode and, and other episodes of the current podcast. And if you'd like to hear more uh, expeditions out into the field, let us know. We'd be uh, 
happy to try that out. You can send us an email at podcast at corinpub.com or find us on all social medias at Corin Publishers. That's right. Uh, and if you do head over to www.corinpub.com, uh, you can get a 10% discount uh, on your order using promo code podcast. Um, and if you enjoyed this episode in particular, we can recommend the Corin Tanakh of the land of Israel um, and uh, a book Arya mentioned earlier on, Places in the Parsha by Professor Yoel Elitzur, um, which explore many of the things uh, that Nachiel spoke to us about as well. Until next time, this has been The Current Podcast. <laughs>